Well, hello and welcome to West Connect Podcast, where we help student-athletes be successful on and off the field. I'm excited to have a very dear friend of mine, an old friend, not that you're old, but maybe we both are, <laughs> Bernadette Doikas. Uh, Dr. Doikas, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So just to um, kind of set the stage here, Bern and I were the same class and we're friends day one at school and all the way through and have stayed in touch and she's a very close friend of mine. So we'll try to keep this professional, but we may slip into friendly chatter. Um, Berna, do you want to give a little bit of background on yourself, how you found your way to Wesleyan and maybe first touch on kind of the athletic experience you had there? Sure. Um, so I wound up at Wesleyan. It's kind of hard to say at this point. Um, I remember I was at Andover and a friend of mine had gone to visit for the, for the weekend or something and was like, that place was great. Um, and I had, I never really knew anything about the school prior to that. And, um, during the summer between junior and senior years did the classic New England college tour with my mom. And we had a stop over in Middletown where we looked at the school and I remember the, the tour guide was this like super tall guy with a huge orange fro and wore a really bright t-shirt and was just like, yeah, this place is pretty cool. And it just left, I don't know, it, as soon as I walked onto that campus, it sort of felt like home. Um, and then uh, sports actually played a pretty predominant role in how I ended up there. Um, I was recruited for lacrosse and Holly was thoughtful and she was young and the program itself like wasn't great at that point in time by any stretch of the imagination. So there was a promise of getting to be able to play. Um, yeah, and so then there I was and I stepped foot on that campus and never looked back. Yeah, absolutely. Both lacrosse friends from day one. Um, you wanna talk a little bit more about kind of the journey that you took educationally, what your major was, how that worked, if you had to kind of make any changes midstream. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I come from a long line of teachers and I was convinced that I was going to be a K-12 teacher, um, probably an elementary school teacher. And so obviously Wesleyan doesn't have an, or didn't have an education program at that point in time. They've just, I believe, introduced one in this past year. But um, so instead of going abroad junior year, I went to New York City where we, I did an urban education semester during the fall, took classes at Bank Street College of Education and taught in a charter school in Jackson Heights, Queens, and quickly realized that I was super interested in education and that I was not going to be a great classroom teacher, especially in the rising standardized testing movement. Um, so that was the fall of 2002. And um, New York City had just been guided to a, a citywide test-driven curriculum. So I spent a lot of the semester that I was in this first grade classroom, like helping kids fill out bubbles. And we were in a classroom where the <laughs> playground for the school was right outside of the classroom windows. And I remember like the sound of the four square balls, like hitting the, the windows of the classroom. And these kids were six, like, of course, they were so horribly disrupted and distracted by what was happening out there. So I became really interested in how K-12 
kids can learn outside of traditional classrooms, um, especially for those kids for whom testing is just not it. They're, they don't test well. And I think I'm one of those types of kids myself. Um, and so I went back to Wesleyan, took what little education classes I could, and then sort of jumped into the educational world, but predominantly um, education research and the out of school time space. Um, so I think I lied on my first job interview at the Education Development Center and told them that I had research um, skills and the reality is in my sociology class, I had one class session about SPSS, which I translated to be like, oh, I know SPSS. Um, so learned a little bit on the fly and coached lacrosse at Babson that year as well. Um, and then worked at a small center for education, for teacher prep. Um, at Wheelock College, which is a small teaching college in Boston, and then went back to school round one at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, um, where I did this really great program that was allowed me to flex my liberal arts chops because we only had to take a few select required classes and then could sort of explore the rest of the curriculum otherwise. So I took some amazing courses in policy and race and equity um, and a couple other areas. Um, and then found myself at the Harlem Children's Zone for two years, where I worked in evaluation, and um, then got a PhD at Vanderbilt uh, in community research and action, where I studied the intersections of schools and communities, um, and specifically looking at how kids from underrepresented college-going backgrounds navigate the college access experience from sort of a social perspective. You know, who do they go to for advice on all aspects um, when that's, that path isn't clearly laid out for them um, by close family members. Um, yeah, and then I was at University of Southern Maine doing some education policy research for a few years, and now I'm at Catalyst Ed, which is an organization that links um, education consultants with short-term short projects that meet mission-critical needs for education organizations such as schools and nonprofits. So if we could kind of rewind the type, tape a little bit, I think it's helpful for current students or maybe recent alums to understand kind of how you got to where you are today. The, the semester abroad in New York City, how did you get turned on to that as an option? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, man, that was a long time ago, so I don't fully remember. <laughs> I do remember that I applied to that program, came across my desk, I, I think just like Maybe somebody in one of my social classes had done it. Um, and also, as you know, your lovely wife also did it, who's a Wesleyan alum. But so the two of us both applied to it at the same time. We were really good friends and both interested in education um, and have taken parallel but different paths since then uh, in the field. And I remember I applied to that and I applied to go to Costa Rica and I got into both programs and I just think that there was part of me that just was like, I need to try this out before I take the leap into a classroom. Um, also, like basically for a kid from the Massachusetts suburbs living in New York is essentially like traveling to a different country. So there was the novelty and the living experience. Um, but it just seemed like a good opportunity for me to like test on this career that was, I thought was it. Um, and I'm so glad that I did. And is that what gave you exposure to Harlem Children's Zone? 
No, not, okay. not at all. Actually, a sister, one of my sisters, so I have a huge family. Um, yes, one of my I'm aware. <laughs> is, uh, she works at the Bristol Myers Squibb Foundation. And so when I had been, I think it was when I was at Harvard that she, they had made a pretty big investment because one of the myriad services that they offer is a childhood obesity initiative. So BMS had funded them. And she was like, this program's pretty cool. Like you should check it out. And so I applied and it was actually a perfect example in which I applied for a position, didn't get it, felt pretty bummed about it. And then they called back like a week later and we're like, actually sort of the net lower rung position underneath it is open all of a sudden. Would you be interested in taking that? And I was like, sure. And then the girl who initially got the job over me um, got fired like two weeks after I arrived. So it all worked out the way it was supposed to. Yeah, and I, I wanna kind of dig in a little bit more on the your kind of academic resume, just because you spent a lot of time being a student. And, you know, my wife, like you mentioned, a Wesleyan alum, she had a similar path. My, my mother has a master's and a PhD in education and my brother's a teacher as well, also Wesleyan grad. And so I'm surrounded by these people in education. And I think, you know, it can be easy to see on LinkedIn or the resume, you know, PhD, check the box, but there's a lot more to it. And there's a lot of sacrifice and time that goes into it. Do you want to talk a little bit about the decision-making process of getting your master's at Harvard and then taking that even bigger commitment to the PhD program that you went into? Yeah, I, I always say if somebody is interested in getting a PhD, talk to me first because I'll ask some critical questions that no one ever asked me. Um, and I wish in hindsight, I had asked myself a little bit more. Um, yeah, so when I was at HCZ, I had an amazing boss. Her name was Bettina Jean-Louis. She was, um, in my, now I realize that she was like my age now, um, running the evaluation department for this um, huge scale, sort of nationally known nonprofit. Um, and I realized that to, to advance even to the next position in our department or to one day be her, I needed a pretty comprehensive suite of technical analysis skills. Um, and so I could have done like a certificate type program or I could have gotten a PhD. And I think I was, you know, enamored by the idea of having a PhD, which now is hilarious since the only time that I like write that I am a doctor is when I'm filling out, I don't know, like an airplane reservation really. Um, so yeah, I think, I, I think that my mindset going into it was like, this will be great. You'll sort of be in and out. It'll be quick. It turned out neither to be in and out nor quick. And it was hard. And I, I didn't necessarily, I didn't have a ton of uh, orientation towards exactly what I should have been doing. For example, number one on my list of pieces of advice is find somebody who you think you would like essentially to be. <laughs> and lock on to their research and figure out a question and, you know, use their guidance both professionally and um, skills wise and content wise and, you know, have it be more of a collaborative experience. Um, there's a lot of allure of finding this sort of like diamond question or new space, but you find yourself sort of like floundering a lot without a ton of support. So. Um, that would be that, 
was probably my biggest lesson learned. And it's just, you know, like, especially if you go when you're a little bit older, I started my program when I was 27 and finished way later than that. I ended up leaving Nashville when I no longer had to be there anymore. So I was working full time and like just had the notion, the knowing that I still had this unfinished dissertation beast on my shoulder for like years. Um, but yeah, so I was 27 and then, you know, you lose years of making a real income. You find yourself, you know, your friends are starting to get married and start these families and you're like still living a very impoverished school lifestyle there. It's just, it's hard. Um, and so that was not something that I had, had any perspective on. I was just like, Oh, there's this thing. And if I do it, I'll have this like fancy title and yeah the next things will just fall right in place after that, which in hindsight is pretty hilarious. So what are the other critical questions when somebody says, Hey, I'm interested in getting my doctorate. I have a similar spiel when somebody wants to go to law school um, or I think I do, but I would love to hear the questions so that people listening, if they are considering it, they can ask themselves these hard, hard questions. Yeah. Um, so that first thing, like, what exactly, what is, what do you want to study and who do you want to study with is number one. Two, does, are the schools that you're looking at, do they offer you the structural supports that you want and need in order to be able to get through? Three, are you really willing to take five years of minimum wage minus which also means you get to the point where you don't have like a for a built up 401k and all of these things. And especially for somebody like me, I'm single. So I, it's, I don't have another income by which to balance that out. And right now, you know, who knows what the future brings, but in the future, I think of just myself along that line. And I think about oof, like what that, what will that net loss be over time? Um, where I, I think the idea of the school, cool. Like, I am so glad that I went to, was in Nashville. I'm, I don't know that Vanderbilt was the right program for me in part because it was the program itself is in the school of education, but itself is not really an education program. And so I sort of found myself in this no man's land where I was dancing between my, pro, my program and a leadership and policy program and a little bit in the sociology department, like the liberal arts experience that I do love and like as fosters my curiosity in the way that I approach education is not ideal for pursuing a PhD, which is supposed to be hyper-specific. Um, so that was a little bit difficult as well. Um, so just getting a sense of where, where you fit in the larger ecosystem of the, the college or university that you're going to. Um, yeah, I think that that's, and like, are you willing potentially to like, what are you willing to sacrifice in terms of a social life as well? Um, which my answer was not very much, which is probably also why it took me a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so I, I think it's important, right? Because you, you see that those letters, the PhD, and you assign a value to it. But, you know, in actuality, it's, it's a lot of, you know, being a research assistant for somebody else. And then, you know, navigating this huge bureaucracy and it just takes forever. I mean, I remember Jess going through it for, I don't know, six, seven years, maybe. Um, and you do need 
like a Sherpa or a rabbi or somebody internally to help guide you through this thing, because it's a lot of work and the burnout rate is high. Dropout rate is high. It's, you know, it's, it's laudable um, and commendable everything that you do, but you've really got to be committed to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of those moments of a a real aha moment for me was I was on or again, a means by which to like hustle and get a little bit of side income was working on a project for the um, Dean of Graduate Research. And um, we wrote a paper about exactly that sort of the professional development of, of doctoral students and how the system is sort of like fundamentally flawed to set you up for professional success beyond research proper and, and that is so is so limiting because even now like I find myself I'm struggling in my current position at times because I can write the heck out of a research paper but sometimes that doesn't translate for a general population and so how do you take those skills and take opportunities to learn how to translate how to you know, not translate not only the language of the, the work that you're doing, but also the skills that you have into other areas and spheres, which I think there's potential for, but um, can be challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so what has it been like, you know, since you've gotten your PhD, since you've been fully in the professional career, what has that journey been like? And what is your, you know, current day-to-day uh, look, look like with your, with your employment today? Yeah, so for the past almost two years, like I said, I've been the, I was the partner for um, measurement learning and evaluation at a nonprofit. And it has been, so at Catalyst Ed, we started, when I started, we, I was a sixth employee. We are now about to hire our uh, 17th, 18th, and 18.5 employees. Um, and so I, I think I had thought about startups as like a purely for-profit phenomenon. Um, and it's not, I mean, this is very much a startup space and things are growing and evolving, including the needs of the folks um, who are doing internally, who are doing the work. And so we've split up our measurement learning and evaluation department into two parts right now. One is research and impact. Um, and I've moved over into an organizational learning position, which is basically we're trying to like codify the practices that have now become our bread and butter so that as people come on, there can be some uniformity because right now we basically have four different teams who do the same stuff, but mildly different from one another. Um, And so for me, like this is a sort of a new suite of skills that I'm um, evolving into or learning and leaning into right now because it's more like some internal research and evaluation. So basically like doing interviews and examining the practice observations and practices of what we do internally. But it's also like a little bit HR because we're trying to figure out how to create training stuff, materials. And um, also how do we create these templates so that if we do start a new line of business, there's something to work from already. Um, So it like, it definitely pushes a bunch of new, (laughs) new things that I feel like I'm learning and like, to be honest with you, like this year has been the worst year of my, probably my professional career um, for a number of different reasons. But I think like you said, you get to this point and you're like, aha, like I'm here, but you're, you're never really like fully arrived. You're always kind of learning in different ways. And part of that for me has been figuring out who, what exactly it is that I am like, where, 
my skills are the best and how to like how you can apply them forward um, in, and get paid for it because I'm sure I could do some great stuff and like not acquire <laughs> a paycheck for it. But that's, you know, again, like part of the reality of my current situation is that I need to pay those bills. So it gets a little bit more difficult, but I think like one of the most telling moments for me this year was I just have all for the last five years on the side done social media for a small spin studio as well which obviously has like no relationship to any of this. But um, there was a period this summer where I was working the desk a little bit because everything is in crisis and I was in crisis and they were in crisis. So we met each other in the middle. Um, and a friend of ours, Brent Taylor, who graduated in 2007, came to visit and he was like, you love a retail shift, don't you? And I was like, I, I do. I really do. Which is again, like, I didn't go to, yeah, I didn't get a PhD to work a retail shift, but there's something about a retail shift that like makes me feel great. So trying to figure out how to balance all of those skills together. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, at some point it may mean a total career shift for me at whether it's at 38 or 45 or 60, who knows? But I think, like I said, that liberal arts mindset of mine makes it hard to settle on one thing. And I think every couple of years it starts to flare up again. Lifelong learner. Uh, something like that. Lifelong non-settler. Lifelong question asker. I don't know what it is. Well, and, and that kind of leads me to a big question I wanted to ask. You know, there's a lot of people at Wesleyan who are very focused on education, and, and, but it's a huge field, right? I mean, you could do everything from what you do to what my wife does, which is work at a, a private school in Nashville, to my brother, who's you know an administrator of a private school. Um, are you more optimistic or less optimistic about going into education today than mm -hmm. say when you were in college? That's a great question. I think um, when we graduated from college and right now, are two are probably the most substantial seismic shifts that have happened in public education specifically. Although No Child Left Behind is, was the first one, um, which is when we really shifted towards standards-based testing, um, which has you know served as the norm in one way or another since 2004. Um, and now as schools shut their doors in March, and we're forced online. Suddenly, I think some both like the limits of the school of school systems as we know them were laid to bear, and the opportunities of schools beyond just four walls were also emerged. And so, I think it's a super exciting time to be in education because you you can ask big questions. There's a lot there's a lot of room for learning, growth, and failure right now because we're all just doing the best we can. Um, and, you know, like, what does it mean when school has been guided by a, a model that was introduced in the insert blank hundreds here, you know, like a schoolhouse has essentially looked the same since the dawn of the United States and before that. Um, so now that we're really starting to, to break that down, like what, 
there's so many questions about what schools can be. And also so many, there's been, especially in serving, most of my work has been in public and in traditionally underserved communities, which were for years have been told like, oh, you just can't do this because taxes, the tax base isn't there, you know, whatever, you know, the expectations, this, this testing systems insert one of a million barriers. But when those are disrupted and schools are pushed to still meet the needs of kids, um, there's been a lot, you know, all those you can'ts have sort of been put to question. And I think there's a lot of exciting opportunity there. And given where you are today, what would you tell freshman year Bernadette? Would you still advise going to get your master's at Harvard? Would you still advise doing the PhD or would you make different choices? I'm not saying to put a value judgment on it. I'm just asking, you know, if people are considering making these moves, um, you know, knowing what you know today, would you have made those same choices? Great questions. Is this, are you getting paid also like as a therapist for these podcasts, Brian? <laughs> no, I mean, I think I get some swag if they're do a hundred episodes. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm almost there. I feel like every conversation that I have with people these days sort of ends up in an accidental therapy session. So I apologize. Um, but I think, I mean, do, I don't know that I have any fundamental regrets, which I think is part of the question that you're asking. I think that life can take a lot more shapes and forms than I thought that it could when I was 18. Um, and I, I think that that is like my number one piece of advice that I give to people between the ages of graduating from college and 25 is like, you get to those points and you think you're so old, you know, like all you, you had on the horizon was college as a, as a youth. And then after that, you sort of start to feel your youth simply waning away as you put some distance between yourself and your last college classes. And like, you're so young. We are so young, even still, like you and me, we're still so young. Um, and so I think that like, not necessarily putting expectations on particular age milestones. Um, I think that that's something I would I would tell myself not to do. And that allows you to be a little bit more exploratory and to, to get a better sense of like the, the what and the why of what you're doing, as opposed to just like, I got to get to the next thing. Because I think that, that was part of it was that I just felt like, okay, well, I've worked for two years. Like I got to learn something new and like have something under my belt. I also like, I loved my program at Harvard. I am so appreciative of everything I learned there. I mean, th throughout these last eight months, Every Wednesday night, I have a Zoom with six women who are just the best from there. I wouldn't trade that for the world. But like, did I need to go to Harvard and pay way, way too much money? No, because that, like, in hindsight, that's their cash cow. And like, of course, they let you in because they want to take your $55,000 a year or whatever it was. Um, so again, like being more thoughtful and intentional, I think, is one of the pieces of advice I would give 18 through let's say 35 year old <laughs> 45 and, and at that the, the question wasn't meant to be provocative in terms of you rethinking your life but more for people listening because I have the same regrets if you're thinking about getting your master's at Harvard or getting your PhD at Vanderbilt or whatever mm -hmm. you've got a network of Wesleyan people that you can reach out to like yourself 
they'll give you a very honest assessment or analysis of what that looked like for them. You know, I went to law school because I thought I don't have any other options and it just seemed like something I could do. And I mm -hmm. should have spent <laughs> a month reaching out to a bunch of, of Wesleyan lacrosse alums who are attorneys and really get a sense of what that looked like for them. Yeah. And the whole thing, right? The social experience, the money experience, out of school, what it meant for them at the, at the age of 35, 45, and 50. And I just never took the time to do it when mm -hmm. it, they would have been happy to help. And I think that's part of what we're trying to do here with these, these stories, these narratives, these interviews, these informational interviews is be able to show people, hey, you know, your situation is going to be unique to yourself, but you have a network of folks that want to help that you mm -hmm. can reach out to. And if you're very serious about taking these, the, these steps, you know, they can be a huge resource for you. So that was more kind of what yeah. I was trying to get at. No, I, I appreciate that. And I think you're right. Um, oh, one other thing I haven't said though, I, and I, I realized, uh, I think this was the first question you asked me. It was like to get a little bit more into the, the lacrosse experience of my time at Wesleyan. Um, playing lacrosse at Wesleyan is one of the top two best things that I did there for a million reasons. I also, I will say again, we were not good. And I think that that provided like a hilarious group of ragtag women who were part of our team, who it's different than, it was certainly different than um, if everybody had, you know, just like played on club teams all through high school, which the sport itself has changed so much since we were there that I think that, that that's the only way you get to play in college now. But um, as a result, just over the course of time, those women are, for me personally and professionally, have been an incredible network who have seen the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And my pre-frosh host was this woman named Sonia Benke, now Sonia Page, who is um, now runs her own nonprofit development um, fundraising uh, consultant, consulting group. And over the years, like she has given me employment. <laughs> like she is somebody who recently I called as we're trying to think through our own development strategy. Um, and my one of my another one of my closest friends has just joined her as a partner in her organization. Who you know they played lacrosse together since they were 13 years old, and now you know are doing this thing called life together. Um, and it's just been so fun, I think, to professionally like support each other because we really do like we are each other's cheerleaders in a way that exactly how we were on the field. Um, so whether it be opening a store, like a, a little corner store in Burlington, Vermont, or being a lawyer or starting your own nonprofit development fund or whatever it is, um, that is another thing that I just am so grateful for. Yeah, I, you know, and I've talked about this on, on maybe one or two of the episodes, but you know, we recently lost a friend who was a Wesleyan lacrosse player. And, you know, I'd encourage you if you're especially a recent grad listening to this and you're, you're five or 10 years out and life is busy, you know, you're starting a family, starting a career, um, you know, take the effort of the time to maintain those relationships because you don't want the next time that you see your friend to be at a funeral or a wake. Um, you spend a lot of time building those relationships. So those people are going to be some of the closest folks that you know in your life. Um, don't let life get in the way of, of staying in touch with them because um, you'll regret it. Uh, yeah, it goes, it goes from uh, you only see each other at weddings to you see each other at funerals faster than anybody realized, I think. Yeah. 
Well, Berna, thank you for making the time. Um, you know, education continues to be, be a fascinating place, I, I think, and there's a lot happening there. And, you know, appreciate you giving us some insight and thoughts about your own journey and where things are today and kind of how you spend your time. So thank you for doing that. Of course, happy to do so. And if you need anything, you being the listeners, find me on the internet, send an email. I'm always happy to talk. Yeah, I, I can personally attest that Bern is one of the most thoughtful, warm-hearted people that will help anybody, especially if they're a, a Wes Lax player. So <laughs> definitely encourage you to reach out. And she's a lot of fun to talk to you about education and other things as well. So thanks, Berna.